In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study from Psalm 60. Each psalm has a title. And this psalm is titled to the chief musician, said to Lily of the testimony, a mishtam of David, for teaching when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the valley of Salt. Actually, I will explain this title word by word, but just I want to read it all to you, but I will explain the title word by word. First, by the way, Psalm 60 has one of the longest expressive titles in all the Psalms. To the chief musician means it is directed to the chief musician. Some commentators said it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Others said it is the leader of the choir or the musician in the time of David, like Heman, the singer, or Asaph. To the chief musician said to Lily of Testimony. Some said Lily of Testimony may refer to an instrument, a harp with six strings. Others said Lily of Testimony can refer to a tune. As we say, this song is like this famous song, just a tune. But other scholars believe that this psalm is like a beautiful lily of testimony. That is a beloved and joyful testimony of God's work of salvation. So this psalm testifies for God's work of salvation. And it is like a beautiful lily, a beautiful flower. Then, to the chief musician, said to the lady of testimony, a mishtam of David. The word mishtam means golden. So this is a golden son of David. And this son is the last of six golden psalms. Then he said, for teaching, a mishtam of David, for teaching. For teaching means intended for teaching, to instruct his generation and the future generation. To instruct them about relying upon God and nothing else we should trust during the time of conflict except God. David recorded the Lord's mighty acts that they might be repeated and taught to generations to come. Then the incident of this psalm, he said when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, 
and Joab returned, Joab is the head of the army of David, returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the valley of Saul. So this psalm refers to the occasion in David's life and the events narrated in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 10. It says David fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah. This would seem to be the war described in 1st Chronicles chapter 19 where Syrian and Mesopotamian forces assisted the Ammonites against Israel which in the end became a long Israelite siege against the Ammonite capital of Rabbah. The parallel account for this episode is in 2nd Samuel chapter 10. Although in 2nd Samuel chapter 10 the Mesopotamian forces are not mentioned but they were mentioned in 1st Chronicles chapter 19. But the title has a note about Joab killing 12,000 Edomites in the valley of Saul. Valley of the salt is desert south to the Dead Sea. So this actually close to the event in 2 Samuel chapter 8, not in chapter 10. Because there was a conflict with Syria in 2 Samuel chapter 8, but ended up in David killing 18,000 in the valley of the salt, not 12,000 as mentioned in the title of this psalm. Also, it can be related to the event in 1 Corinthians chapter 18 when Joab's brother Abishai killed 18,000 Edomites and Joab was over the army. But since it is written in this psalm 12,000 but in 2 Samuel or in 1 Chronicles mentioned it is 12,000, sorry, 18,000. So something, there is nothing in the content of this psalm that bears any relation to the title. And the victories in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles do not mention the kind of setback lamented in this psalm. So maybe the psalm is referring to an incident that was not mentioned in 2 Samuel or in 1 Chronicles. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 8 describe the numerous victories of David and the numerous victories of his army again in the surrounding nation. But Psalm 60 begins by talking about how God had rejected David and the people of Israel. So perhaps the psalm was written at the moment when David received the news of the defeat inflicted by Edom and Joab was sent to prevent and resist the invaders. And as I said, the valley of the salt seems to be the border area between Edom and Israel. So most likely this psalm was written during good times and bad times. Others consider the psalm as descriptive of the distracted state of the land 
after the fatal battle of Galboa, till David was anointed king of the whole nation of Israel at Hebron. But one of the best explanation is the explanation of St. Augustine. St. Augustine said this psalm includes a prophecy concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, as the prophetic spirit in the psalm's title is wont to depart somewhat from the expression of things done and to say something which in history is not found. So St. Augustine said, the title of this psalm doesn't speak about things happened in history of David but to admonish us that the titles of this kind have been written not that we may know things done in history but things future may be prefigured so he said this psalm is about future prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ especially the title in the Septuagint version when he burned the Syrian Mesopotamia and Heman Zoba. So according to St. Augustine, burning those provinces refer to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in us, the Gentiles who believed in him. St. Augustine says, that destruction indeed that David made, David is the type of Christ, he did those things. He made this destruction with the sword and fire. So he said, Jesus made this destruction by the sword and fire. For both he brought into the world, as Jesus said, I came to send fire on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So St. Augustine explains that God brought his mercy on us. He destroys the old man in us by fire and, and sword that he built us and beautify us. He is burning our haughtiness and pride as well as to end the work of the old man in us. He destroys the old man in order that there may be a building unto a new man building abides for everlasting. Also explains, St. Augustine explains the word Edom means earthly. Edom is Adim Adam. And all these words are meaning earthly. So the Lord came to destroy the earthly man in us. For why should one live earthly? We ought to live heavenly because our citizenship is in heaven. What about the 12,000? St. Augustine says, 12,000, number 12 is the perfect number. To which perfect number also the apostles were 12 in number. So he sent the word, his word to the whole world. That's what St. Augustine is explaining. The four parts of the world thereof are well known to all of us. East, 
west, north, and south. To all these four parts, we send the word of God. So that in them, the Trinity may be called. So we have the Trinity in four areas, then it is twelve. So, St. Augustine says, With reason, therefore, twelve thousand earthly things were smitten. He killed 12,000 of Edomites. So Edom means earthly. So he killed in us the earthly man in the whole world. For from the whole world was it chosen out the church mortified from earthly life. So he said 12,000 is a symbolic number. It's not a real number. How God destroyed the earthly man in order to bring the Holy Trinity in the four areas of the world. And number thousand actually means heavenly. So he built in us the heavenly nature. We have heavenly citizenship. This psalm is 12 verses and we can outline it into four parts. From verse 1 to 3, a plea for mercy from God who has afflicted his people. 4 and 5, hope in his deliverance. 6 to 8, God's word of triumph over the nations. 9 to 12, renewed trust in God who helps. So we'll start from verse 1. O God, you have cast us off you have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore again. David and the armies of Israel fought against foreign armies as we fight against Satan and experienced some measure of defeat as sometimes we are defeated by sin. David knew that when the Lord fought for Israel, victory is assured. And if there is a defeat, most likely because of God's displeasure. Therefore, David appealed to what he believed to be the ultimate cause of this defeat, not the immediate cause. The ultimate cause is God is displeased with Israel. That's why he offered a deep, sincere prayer. The sense of separation from God is worse than the defeat itself. That's why he cried at the end of verse 1, Restore us again. Immediately bring hope to the matter. If in some way God has caused the defeat in Israel, it did not discourage David from appealing to God that his favor may be restored. So as if, even if you are displeased with us, but I still have hope that you can restore us. Some applied the first two verses to the distress of the people of Israel by their neighbors in the time of the judges, to their being beaten by the Philistine 
and after the time of judges in the time of Eli the priest and Samuel and the victory they obtained over them when Saul and his sons were killed and to the civil wars between the house of Saul and King David. However, others believe, as St. Augustine said, it belongs to the future time, which by the Holy Spirit David prophesied. So in a prophetic way, verse 1 refers to the abandonment of the Jews as a nation and as a church when they had rejected the Messiah and killed the Lord Jesus Christ and persecuted his apostles and despised the gospel. So David is praying on behalf of Israel, O God, you have cast us off, you have broken us down, you have been displeased, O restore us again. And we know, as we read in the letter to Romans, that there is at the end, some of Israel will accept the faith in Christ. Verse 2, you have made the earth tremble, you have broken it, heal its breaches, for it is shaken. So the adversity and the failure is compared to an earthquake, which is often used as a symbol of the divine judgment. David felt as if the whole earth shook at the defeat of God's people. Yet God, who could shake the earth, also could heal its breaches. That's why he told him, you made the earth tremble, heal its breaches, for it is shaken. The divine judgment is depicted in verse 2 as an earthquake. But in verse 3, as imagery of drunkenness, which also commonly used in scripture describing divine judgment. As we read in verse 3, you have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Also in Ezekiel chapter 23 from verses 32 to 34 is speaking about divine judgment as drunkenness wine of confusion. We read in Ezekiel 23, Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria, he speaking to Judah, you shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Then he said to him in verse 3, You have shown your people hard things. The defeat of Israel was hard to understand. And there were many other aspects of their situation that caused David confusion. So he said, you made us drink the wine of confusion. 
But there was a kind of comfort in understanding that God was the author of all of this. Because what God does in judgment and discipline, He can restore it in love and mercy. St. Augustine, as I told you, looked at the psalm as a prophetic psalm. So, St. Augustine said about verse 3, it refers to the church. When he said, you have shown your people hard things, St. Augustine says, we're in, in persecution, which the church of Christ has endured when so much blood of martyrs was spilled. St. Augustine said, what is the wine of confusion? He said, not of killing. For it was not a killing that destroys, but a medicine that burns. So he said, all this persecution was not killing that destroys. So don't be confused. This killing is not to destroy the church, but it's like a medicine. Verse 4, you have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. David felt that God had rejected Israel, yet he would not stop flying the banner of alliance and trust in God. So David is still is flying this banner of alliance and trust in God, although he felt that God rejected them. The banner, as you know, is a type of flag used during war by the army as signaling device and assembling point. So the people assemble at the flag or banner. So Israel was broken down, but God raised up his banner to signal to the people that there was a place to gather. David then declares that the banner and the cause to be gathered around is truth and in the defense of justice and right. When he said that it may be displayed, this banner displayed because of the truth. So this banner is the truth. It's to defend the justice and the right. So God raised the banner to call his people to return back to the truth. If the banner is the truth and the banner is the point of assembling, then God is calling the people to return back to the truth. Truth about God, who he is and what he has done. So this truth demanded that this banner be displayed. So the idea here is that God had committed such a standard to his people, the, the truth, that they might go forth as soldiers in his cause. Soldiers to defend the truth. We are enlisted in, in the service of God and we are fighting the battles of God. So the banner is not only just displayed for vain parade. 
and it was not to be waived for the mere purpose of securing victory. No, it is deeper than this. It was that a righteous cause may be defended, the truth about God, and the honor of God might be promoted. So, the banner is the place where the godly may find refuge under the protection of the divine warrior. The godly who fear him, as we read, you have given a banner to those who fear you. So the godly who fear God will find protection from the attacks of the enemy. And what was true of the people of God then, it is true of the church right now. God has given to us a banner or a standard that it might fight a war of justice, righteousness, and truth. And this banner is a cross. And the banner ought to be employed in resisting and overcoming God's enemy. Verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. So after recognizing the need for the people to gather under the banner of truth, David calls out to God for deliverance and salvation. So in the midst of this turmoil, David is calling out to God for divine intervention. David needs God to act so that those whom he loved may be rescued, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. And the prophet David seeks from God to hear his prayer for salvation, not only for him, but for all those who love God. And he said, by your, your right hand, Save with your right hand. The right hand of God is his son, Jesus Christ. And through his son, he made salvation for all mankind. Verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shakim and measure out the valley of Sukkot. So, in verse 5, Appeal was made in God's promises. Then in verse 6, God did not simply speak, but he swore by his holiness. God has spoken in his holiness. In his holiness means he swore by his holiness. Spoken here is the same like promised or sworn. As we read in Psalm 89, once I have sworn by my holiness. And in Amos chapter 4 verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. And God's holiness includes his whole essential nature in its moral aspect. And that nature makes it impossible for God to break his promise. So instead, God speak in his holiness means it's true. This promise cannot be broken. God 
had promised Israel victory and David the kingdom. So the holiness of God assured the fulfillment of his promise. That's why David spoke confidently. God has spoken in his holiness. Then he said, I will rejoice. Who is speaking here? God or David? Some say God, some say David. So, if God is the one who is speaking, this means God will rejoice in his lordship over Israel. This joy is represented as a victorious warrior conquering the land and dividing it to his people. As he rejoiced on the cross when he saved us. God's response about dividing the land when he said, I will divide Shakim and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. This takes us back to the days of Joshua when he divided the promised land and the downfall of the land of Canaan. So God declares that he will triumph just as he did before. As he gives them the promised land he will give us the heavenly kingdom. While the nations battled, it was as if David understood the Lord to step forward and set the dispute with his authority. So in the middle of this war, God stepped forward and settled the dispute. He said, this will be given to Israel. But the meaning also can be God has given David his word of promise. That's why David will rejoice. So I will rejoice can be of David or of God. God has spoken in his holiness that David will be king. David does not doubt that the kingdom is his own. As sure as if it were already in his hand. And I will rejoice can be about the believers who rejoice in the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he said, I will divide Shekim and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Shekim represents the territory west of the Jordan, a pleasant city in the Mount Ephraim. The valley of Sukkot actually represents the territory east of Jordan. So Sukkoth, east of Jordan, Shekim, west of Jordan. And God has fulfilled his promise to grant them the promised land, the entire land of Canaan, west and east of Jordan. So as I said, valley of Sukkoth represents the east and Shekim the west. These two places, named because of their connection with the history of Jacob, Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes. Jacob settled first at Sukkoth, then at Shechem, when returned to Canaan, as we read in Genesis chapter 33, verse 17 and 18. God will fulfill his promise to Jacob. God promised Jacob that his people will inherit this land. So he distributed to his people, to the offspring of Jacob, the land in which their great ancestor settled. 
Others said, God has spoken in His Holiness. His Holiness referred to His Son, His Holy One, by whom God the Father has spoken in the last times unto His people, as we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. In the former times, God spoken through the prophets, but in the latter times, He spoke through His Son. Verse 7, Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my law giver. Gilad, all the land beyond the Jordan, which was possessed by Raubim, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. The other half of the tribe of Manasseh inherited within the Jordan. He mentioned Gilad and Manasseh. This is the land of Bashan in which have the tribe of Manasseh settled and stand for the territory east of the Jordan and the tribes settled there. Ephraim and Judah stand for the tribes west of Jordan. So when he said Gilad and Manasseh, that's east of Jordan, Ephraim and Judah west of Jordan. God claims all Israel as his own. All therefore can claim, claim God's protection. So all the tribes of Israel can say we are under God's protection. And he repeated the word mine and my, reflecting that everything is his. When he said, Gilad is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim my helmet, Judah my lawgiver. Ephraim is compared to a warrior helmet. Why? Because Ephraim was the most powerful, important of the tribes and held the central position in the western region, forming the many strengths of the northern kingdom, Israel, after the separation under Jeroboam. That's why he called Ephraim helmet. Judah my lawgiver, because the tribe of Judah is the tribe to which God has committed the government of his people. David was from the tribe of Judah. So, who is the great lawgiver? It's Christ. And Christ came from the tribe of Judah. So that's why he said, Judah is my lawgiver. So Gilad and Manasseh on the east of Jordan, Ephraim and Judah on the west, are applied to signify the whole dominion. Then in verse 8, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia shout in triumph because of me. After God spoke about Israel, now he is speaking about the surrounding nations. In a strong contrast to the honor assigned to Ephraim, Judah, we can see in verse 8 the disgrace of the enemies of God, Moab and Edom. Moab, known by its pride, so it's compared vessel, washpot, which is brought to the victorious warrior to wash his feet 
when he returns from the battle. Edom, all the proud and cruel enemy of Israel. So Moab and Edom were noted here for their pride. Now they are given places of humble service. So the old enemy of God and his people is degraded to lowly service. In other words, it becomes a vessel. Moab in servitude of David and Edom subjected underfoot. So verse 8 signifies victory and power. Moab was his washpot to wash his hand and feet. He said, I cast my shoe over Edom as shoe cleaner. So Edom like, like shoe cleaner to wipe off and remove the dirt and dust that was upon them. All denotes great subjection to Israel. And actually this was fulfilled in 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 14. But in prophetic way, it may refer to the spread of the gospel in the Gentile world. Philistia shout in triumph, as if they had reason to rejoice and be glad, because now they are subject to David. In a prophetic way, it applied to the Gentile. When subdued by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are delivered from the hands of sin and Satan and the world, now we shout in triumph. So the point here that God is powerful and in control even if in the face of enemy threats. St. Augustine contemplates on this verse over Edom, I will cast my shoe, and he says, here the church speaks, I will come through even unto Edom, let tribulation rages, let the world boil with offenses even unto those very persons that lead an earthly life. Because Edom, as he told you, means earthly. So the people who lead earthly life will actually be in tribulation. Why? So that they may repent and return to God. And about I will cast my shoe, he said, what shoe? Of what thing the shoe represent except of the gospel? As we read, how beautiful the feet of them that tell the peace, that tell of good things. And the feet should undo the preparation of gospel of peace, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6. So the gospel of peace, of reconciliation with God, will reach Edom and Edom would believe in God. Verse 9, Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. So he's saying, who will take me to the strong city? Who will take me to Edom, the strong city? It is you, O God, but you cast us off and you did not go out with your armies. 
I am pleading with you to give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. So the remembrance of God's promises has raised the psalmist out of hopelessness and can now confidently call God to his assistance. He is saying, Edom should be conquered. You promised us, but how Edom will be conquered? Edom is a strong city. Its capital, Petra, famous for its inaccessibility. And Edom was a high and rocky country, walled and protected by nature, and therefore not to be invaded and subdued, except with divine hand. So David is saying, who can lead us into the enemy's stronghold? None but you, O God, but you has deserted us. Although God had seemed to reject and forsake the people, but they are saying, we have no other resource except you, O God. The psalmist trusted that God would not forsake them altogether. Yes, God for a moment deserted them and has not led them and their armies to victory. But he is surely that God will give them help right now because they trust in God only. They don't trust in any man. Although God may seem to forsake us, that although he may leave us for a time to discouragement and grace when we feel that, that discouragement and darkness, when we feel that the grace of God abandoned us, but we have no other resource except him. O God who cast us off, Yes, God may discipline, but because he loves us, as we read in Isaiah 54, verse 7, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. David had seen many brave men accomplish great things on the field of battle, but for David and for Israel, the help of man was not enough. Indeed, it was useless, as he said, In verse 11, for the help of man is useless. God's help would lead them to victory. They cannot find the victory in themselves. They have no hope unless God is willing to act on their behalf. It is only through God and his grace that we also, the believers, we can achieve or accomplish any spiritual victory in him who give us strength and inspire us. Last verse, verse 12. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall trade down our enemies. We will gain strength and will go forth with the spirit and with courage to the war only through God. This expresses a confident assurance that under God we would achieve victory. David say, says their fighting through God would be brave and valiant and in it they would see God trade down their enemies. So when God goes with them 
they will be courageous, they will be valiant, and will see God trading down their enemies. God will trade or trample them down. Also, he will enable his people to do this, and our enemies hear Satan. It's beautiful that this psalm began in defeat, God to cast us off, but end in victory. This psalm began in hopelessness and sadness, but as most of the psalms do, it ends with confident hope, with assurance of the grace of God, and with the firm belief that the appeal sought in this psalm that God may deliver them and save them, it's obtained. And the history shows that the prayer was answered and the armies of David were successful. The Edom was subdued and that's thus the territory of the Hebrew people in the time of David, exactly the boundaries promised to Abraham and mentioned in this psalm. In the same way, as we face our spiritual enemies today, the spiritual forces that seek to destroy us. Let us remember, as David said in the concluding verse, that only God can help us in our spiritual warfare. Only God can help us to win the battle and grant us the ultimate victory. This concludes Psalm 60. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.